I'd like us to look this evening at the book of Acts and chapter 2 and verse 42 to 47. It's uh, page 1094 if you're using one of the red church pube Bibles in front of you and it would certainly help you to maybe have that in front of you and have it open um, as we uh, look at the passage together. That's uh, Acts chapter 2 um, and verses 42 to 47. That's page 1094 in the uh, church Bibles. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. This is a description of the early church in Jerusalem. And Luke writes, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Thanks be to God for his word. Um, If you only ever listened to the media to get your view of church, I wonder what you would think about church. If uh, the only uh, contact, if the only information, the only uh, experience, if you like, of church that you ever had was through the media, I wonder what your view of church would be. I uh, have to think that uh, as I look at the uh, media, I think that the stories that it covers about Christians and about Christianity and about the church in a general, generally fall into four main categories. First of all, they are what I would call the decline stories. These are stories when we are told by what percentage the church is declining, and we normally uh, rather pessimistically given the year in which the church will die out completely. I think that some uh, journalists have forgotten that the Lord Jesus promised to build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Then there are what I would call the scandal stories. When a minister falls from his position due to financial impropriety or of course better still for for the tabloids a sex scandal is guaranteed to make the front page of the newspapers. Then there's what I would call the controversy stories. We're in one of these at the moment, of course, about the appointment of an openly gay bishop in the Church of England. And what normally happens is that uh, someone somewhere has come up with an idea to modernise the church by changing its doctrine, and the story is played out in terms of a kind of clash between the progressive liberals who are up for it and the reactionary evangelicals who aren't. And then finally, there are what I would term the weird stories when the church does something bizarre or something unusual or something strange, that's always guaranteed to get the headlines too, isn't it? Whether it's uh, starting a church in a club or whether it's introducing clones into church services or whatever it is. The media love to get in on that kind of act and uh, report a poor little, a a desperate church, look what it's doing now kind of story. And I actually challenge you to try and find a story about church in the media that doesn't fit into one of these categories. 
I challenge you to do that. I'll be interested to see if by next week any of you can actually come up to, to one. But I think the vast majority of stories that we have fall into one of these four categories. And if all you were ever fed was a constant diet of stories like those, what kind of view would you come out with? I think you'd very quickly come away with the idea that the church was small, hypocritical, disunited and odd. Small, hypocritical, disunited and odd. And that's us, in the view of many. I think one implication of this is that we have to wake up to the fact that it would not even enter the distant horizons of the radar screens of the majority of people in our world to even enter a church or go anywhere near it. Why on earth would they want to do that? Nothing could be more alien to them. And that, of course, for us, means that we've got to find some radical new ways of reaching them. And that's one reason why I'm so enthusiastic about the festival outreach. But that's, of course, a completely separate sermon. I think one other implication of this for us is that we need to realise more clearly, clearly than ever who we are and what church is actually really all about. And that's what I'd like to look at tonight as we look at this uh, text from Acts chapter 2 together. And the uh, first thing that we need to look at here is to say that the church is not about a building or a denomination. It's crystal clear if you look at the previous uh, verses from verse 38 down to 41, that uh, the, the, the church here was comprised of uh, folk who had become Christians, who had been baptised, and who had received the Holy Spirit. It was a group of individuals, a group of uh, people. And what this means is that when we refer to the church, we can really only mean two things by it. Either we are talking about the total number of believers who have ever lived, the complete church of God, who will one day be with him in heaven, or we are talking about the local body of believers in a particular location, like we are here right now at Charlotte Chapel. But either way, we are talking about people who have become Christians, not a, a building or not some man-made structure or institution like a, a denomination, helpful though that may occasionally be. And in these verses here, Luke gives us a snapshot of one of the first local churches. The one in Jerusalem here was probably a few months old after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. And in many ways, this summarizes some of the uh, priorities and characteristics that should be true, not just of this church, but of, of all churches at all times. And as such, it makes a very good and helpful model for us to study. As we will look at it, we will see that the church is not perfect, but nonetheless, it is still worth being committed to and persevering with. So then, what does Luke have to uh, tell us? What are the marks of a healthy church? Well, I've got three. Um, those of you who know me well will know that if there's one thing I detest more than anything else, it is uh, preachers who have all their points beginning with the same letter. However, on this time, I tried to get one that was uh, different, but uh, unfortunately, the kind of closest words that capture what I want to say all do begin with the same letter. So I'm apologizing for that, and uh, I promise you that it'll never, ever happen again. First of all then, the a pursuit of God. And you can see this in verse 42. It uh, says there that the church was obsessed by, or uh, devoted to, or really keen on certain things. These uh, young Christians were brimming with enthusiasm and uh, threw themselves wholeheartedly into the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, communion, and prayer and I'd just very simply like to look at each of those in turn. 
the fact that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching shows that they were really keen to learn. They were a church of learners. For them, instruction from God's word and a teaching were right at the top of their list of priorities. This church here wasn't just listening to preaching, but was digesting it and obeying it and putting it into practice. As we saw last week, learning from Jesus and uh, sitting at his feet is a priority of any disciple. And so this group of new Christians learned everything about Jesus from the apostles that they could. They really drank up the truth about the Lord. And it may surprise some of you here to know that great preaching is not the mark of a great church. Great learning is. The ultimate test of a church is not whether you have a great preacher in the pulpit. It is whether you have great learners in the pews. A church like Charlotte Chapel could quite happily slide a downhill under some of the finest preaching in the land. Because a great church is all about great learners, about us being great disciples, rather than having one great preacher or one not-so-great preacher at the front. See, a healthy church is always characterised by great learning. Then it also says that they committed themselves to the fellowship. Notice that it says, the fellowship. There was something here that was defined and distinct and easily recognisable about the Christians in Jerusalem that people could uh, attach themselves to. And this means for us that identifying yourself with a visible, active, recognisable group of other people who also follow Jesus Christ is something that's just not an optional extra for the Christian. See, God has no secret service in his army. We don't to skulk about in, in, incognito in the undergrowth as, as Christians, scared in case someone blows our cover. But we're to be committed to a, 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 an acknowledged uh, group of believers that's uh, visible and recognisable where we are. Then it says that they broke bread together. Now that probably means that they had communion, but it means a lot more than that, because if you look forward to verse 46, it says that they broke bread together every day in each other's homes. So what probably happened is that uh, a group of believers would have had a meal together, and then at the end of it, someone would have stood up and done a reenactment of the Last Supper, and they would have all recalled together what the Lord Jesus had done on the cross when he died for them to forgive their sins. So another mark of a healthy church is a church that keeps the cross right at the centre of its life and worship, the breaking of bread. Finally, it says that they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, we've obviously been looking at prayer a lot this year as a church. And we've seen that prayer for the Christian is like breathing. It's something normal, something natural, something absolutely essential to their health and to their life. The way that you can know that someone is alive is by whether or not they are breathing. If there's no prayer going, go, going on, then you can be sure that your Christian is not alive and well and that very soon they're going to suffocate. If there is prayer going on, then you can be sure about that the Christian that you're looking at and that you're, you're studying is alive and well. It's a sign of uh, seeking after God, the pursuit of God. Now, I think one of the commonest reasons I hear from folk not getting involved in church is that they say that they don't get anything out of it. However, I think this verse here actually turns that completely on its head. It says that if we're a Christian, then it's the most natural thing in the world to take part in corporate acts of devotion with other Christians, like teaching and prayer and fellowship, for instance. 
You see, we don't come along and be part of a church because it benefits us. That's the wrong way round. Rather, when we become a Christian, we become part of the church. And so we go along to benefit others and to grow ourselves and be blessed through that. The fact of the matter is that there are certain uh, irreducible, essential, corporate acts of devotion that have to be fundamental to the life of the Christian. That's what this is talking about here. When someone becomes a Christian, they join the, the church and they just have to find other Christians, other believers, to express that devotion to. You see, the New Testament just can't get its mind round a Christian who is not part of a, a, a church. That's just quite simply a category that does not exist in the New Testament. When someone comes to Christ, the very next thing that happens is they are baptised and they find a church to join. That seems to be the model of things that, that happens. I would actually go as far as to say that in New Testament terms, it's almost impossible to be a Christian and not involved in a local group of believers. The two things are just so closely joined, the Christian and the church, that it's not possible to separate them. It's like saying that you can be a, a tortoise and not live in a shell. Now, obviously, you could be a tortoise and not live in a shell, but the idea is just unimaginable and unthinkable and unnatural. And if the tortoise tried it, it would probably get picked off by predators very quickly, wouldn't it? Because it didn't have its shell. So the first question for us is this. Has our experience of Christ led us to get involved in some acts of corporate devotion with other believers? Are we part of a church? Are you committed to acts of corporate devotion with other Christians? You see, those kinds of things aren't just more meetings in your already hectic schedule. They're actually your lifeblood. Therefore, you need them. They're important in the pursuit of God. So then, number two is uh, the people of God. And the second mark of a healthy church is that it is a community where the people really love and care for each other. We've already seen from the previous uh, verse that the believers were committed to fellowship. And we get a greater insight into what that actually means in, uh, verses, four, in verses 44 and 45, right in the middle of the uh, text there. And in this particular case here, the church's sense of community was expressed in a kind of... Uh, voluntary communism where all the believers are paid to hold all the goods in common and sold their real estate and their belongings so that they could give to anyone who was in material need now there's nothing that frightens us more than this kind of verse and so we've managed to do a sterling job throughout the centuries of explaining it away firstly we like to make the point that, that this practice clearly wasn't universal as some of the believers obviously kept their homes as we read about the church meeting in them um, later on. Then, secondly, we take comfort from the fact that it seems as if this uh, communism was entirely voluntary. No one had to participate in uh, selling their goods if they didn't want to. And we all know from the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 that even when they did it, their money was still theirs to distribute as they saw fit. Then, thirdly, we love to point out that there's nothing in Scripture against owning private property. After all, isn't that assumed in the command not to steal? And isn't the real point here, not that this actually happened, but that the believers were ready and willing to share what they had, rather than actually sell it and actually have to um, share it with other people? Fourthly, 
we now have a national health service and a welfare state, so who needs this kind of thing anyway? We all pay our taxes to make sure that the poor and the underprivileged are cared for, and therefore the church no longer has any need to be involved in this kind of work, and so on, and so on. And most of that I agree with. However, I always feel slightly nervous when we become too good at explaining away texts, especially when it involves something as close to our own hearts and as dear to our own hearts as owning property and having lots of material possessions. And so, I don't know, maybe there is a challenge here for some of us. A sale of property, perhaps, for the new church that we're going to build at Nidri. Or a greater compassion for Christians in Africa or Eastern Europe who are in genuine and real material need and are just as much a brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ as the person sitting next to you. I'll leave those thoughts with you. However, there's also another way of looking at these verses that makes them even more relevant to our situation and culture here. And that's just to think about the kind of a question and take a step back. What needs are there in our fellowship and our world that we have the resources to meet but yet don't meet? I wonder. What does it mean for us to live together as a community of God's people and to give to anyone who has need. And you see, I reckon that the problem for us is not so much material poverty as relational poverty. People might not suffer from physical starvation, but they do suffer from love starvation. There's an epidemic of loneliness where people are malnourished through lack of time and care and concern and having their views and opinions taken seriously, being appreciated. And so maybe one way that we can demonstrate this kind of community that we read about here in these uh, verses is, is through sharing our uh, time and our care and our love in some very practical and sacrificial ways, just like these earlier believers in Jerusalem did. This is Jerry Halliwell, in many ways the spokeswoman for her generation, speaking in her recent book, my hopes and dreams are like those of most of the population, to find love and live happily ever after, not much to ask. But actually, I'm not sure what happily ever after really means. Is happiness a daily thing I can choose to feel? As for finding true love, I sometimes feel scared to show my vulnerability about how much I want to be loved, to be held at night, cherished, comforted, cuddled, to have someone to share my life with, someone to laugh and cry with. If that were to happen, that would be amazing. Jerry Halliwell. I sometimes feel scared to show my vulnerability about how much I want to be loved, to be held at night, cherished, comforted, cuddled, to have someone to share my life with, someone to laugh and cry, cry with. If that were to happen, that would be amazing. See, through all her struggles with eating disorders and everything else, Jerry relates that all she wants is somewhere to be accepted and loved, someone to share her life with. And it's not just celebrities who feel like this either. All of us at some level yearn for this sense of community and acceptance and belonging. And that's where the church fits in. We need to be a community that shares and gives to people who have those kinds of relational needs. So then, what do we have to do? Community requires three things. First of all, sacrifice. In our a passage here, the believers had to sell their possessions. For them, that was their most valuable thing. 
we, we might not have to sell our possessions, but we will have to use our most valuable asset, which for many of us is our time. And for us, that requires a sacrifice. It, it doesn't really matter whether it's using a car to give someone a lift or using our home to give someone a meal. It's, it's still the practice of community, but it takes a great deal of time and effort. I actually think Charlotte Chapel is very good at this. I certainly speak to a lot of people who receive a warm welcome here. But I still think that we need to work hard at providing hospitality and friendship to new people who come along. Then next, the practice of community involves structure. This might surprise a few of you. I think uh, many of us tend to have this uh, over-romantic view of community where we kind of think that it just automatically and spontaneously happens and uh, everyone just immediately looks out and cares for everyone else and, uh, and their needs are met. However, I actually think in any church over about 80 folk that you need some kind of structure and organisation to make sure that community and caring actually goes on. So I'm, again, glad that we've got things like the fellowship groups that facilitate uh, community and make sure it does happen. It's in interesting to see in the particular scripture passage here that the Christians were meeting in each other's homes as well as in the temple courts. But then thirdly, community requires effort. It actually takes work, both on the part of uh, someone on the outside of the church looking in and uh, also from those of us on the inside of the church looking out. I once met someone uh, who complained that they never felt part of the church here, and yet when it came down to it, they admitted that they only ever came once every three weeks and always left during the closing hymn. You see, community is something that requires effort in two ways, both from the inside out and from the outside in. Why do you think uh, Luke gives us this description of community? Well, I don't think he does it because it's unique and a one-off in the uh, history of the church but actually because it's something good and something praiseworthy. He wants his readers who are rich and affluent and well-off to be challenged about their giving to a poor world. And for us, that means riches and it means time and love. So that's uh, the people of God. And thirdly, the presence of God. The third mark of a healthy church is the presence of God. When a church functions as it ought, there ought to be good, tangible evidence of God working in it and through it. And again, that's uh, something that we can see here. first piece of evidence is in verse 43, where it says that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Just as Jesus' miracles showed that God was with them in his ministry, so the miracles done by the apostles showed that God was with them in theirs in the early church. Now, the first thing we need to say here is that uh, God is able to do signs and wonders uh, today and that there is absolutely nothing at all limiting his awesome uh, power. I've recently been reading a book about the church in uh, China that details some incredible uh, miracles that have been done recently in the church there. However, we also need to say that it's, it's far from clear in the Bible that miracles are normative and we ought to expect them as a matter of course. If, if you look more closely at the Bible, you discover that the signs and wonders aren't just done randomly and kind of a litter throughout the whole thing, but they're actually clustered around certain key events when God is doing something new, like the Exodus, or the start of the ministry of the prophets, or the life of Christ, or here, when the early church received the Holy Spirit, for instance. And then even when miracles do occur today, they're never on the same scale as in the Scriptures, 
And they tend to be direct answers of God to prayer rather than coming through some kind of specially gifted uh, uh, apostle or faith healer or something like that. None of whom actually exist today in the same way as they did here in the New Testament. However, the surprise of the problem in a church like this one is that we expected miracles to happen too much. Much more likely is that some of us don't expect them to happen at all. So maybe some of us ought to be a little more uh, adventurous in our praying. A, a second sign of God's presence with his church is conversions. In uh, verse 47, it says, And the Lord added daily um, to their number uh, those who were being saved. It's worth noticing that this is the Lord doing it and not us. A sure indicator that God is with his church is when he adds folk through it, adds folk to it through evangelism on a regular basis. I think sometimes we can think that, you know, God's presence is uh, a kind of inner warm, fuzzy feeling that we kind of have during a Christian concert or during a really good sermon. I think it's much more likely that God's presence in his church is seen through people becoming Christians and being discipled. What, what better way to know that God is with his people than that he's adding to them all the time and that they're growing and moving on in their understanding. And then finally, um, we know that God's presence is with us when people are praising God out of glad and sincere hearts. That's what it says there in uh, verse 46. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. When people's lives are changed through the Spirit and through the Word, it overflows into praise and thanksgiving to God. I think it's one of the great things about many of the uh, modern songs and choruses that we sing, that we can sing to God in words that are natural and meaningful to us and that we use in everyday life and that give some kind of expression and sense of the joy and freedom that, that we found in Christ. So then, how do we uh, apply some of uh, what this has to say about God's presence? This is quite tricky, as some of you will know. Um, so uh, I want us to try and be clear on it. When Christians meet together with God, God is with them because he's promised to be. The Holy Spirit lives inside each Christian, and therefore when two or more of them get together, God is there, as we know from Scripture. This means that when we meet for a service at Charlotte a chapel, we can always guarantee that God is with us. We don't have to get stressed or not about whether God is going to have to turn up. If there are two Christians here with the Holy Spirit, then God is here with his church, with his people. However, we often pray that we would know a sense of God's presence. What do we mean by that? Well, I think in actual fact, what we mean when we pray that is that we would see more evidence of God working here. We are looking to see people become Christians. We're looking to see people's lives being changed as the word is preached and the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sins and points them towards Jesus. And you see that, that kind of, uh, kind of feeling God's presence, uh, sensing God's presence, knowing it here, being, being about God's activity, that's actually something that we can do something about. For one thing, we can pray that God will be active in, in our church, active in our church services and our fellowships as we sing and, and as the scriptures are explained. We know for sure that God is present. That's a, a definite. We can count on it because he's promised it. But we also need him to be active and working through us. And that's something that we can pray for. As well as praying, we also have to get on board with what God is doing. That means the quiet, ongoing work of evangelism. It means praising God together out of glad and sincere hearts, not complaining out of shallow hearts and putting on a show. 
It means coming with a prepared heart to church and asking God to use you once you get here. So then the key question is not, is God's presence with us here? The key question is, is God active here? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit's work here at Charlotte Chapel? Hosanna Evangelism and Discipleship. Are we fathoming new depths of joy in, in, in Christ as we overflow with uh, joy during our services? Are we sensing his presence as he works in us and through us in this church week by week? Or are we getting old and cold and stale? So then, those are the uh, three marks of a healthy church. It is somewhere where people are seeking after God together in corporate acts of devotion. It's somewhere where there is a sense of Christian community as we care for one another. And it's somewhere where God is working and is active in the world. Very quickly, what are the results of a church like, like this? We can see two responses there. First of all, in verse 43, it says that everyone was filled with awe. When they saw this church, their jaws dropped onto the ground because they realised that God was real. It wasn't just a concept, it wasn't just something that they'd heard about from their parents, it wasn't just a philosophical or religious idea that they'd been taught. They realised that God was real. This church was different. God is real. What, what uh, do I have to do about it? Then in verse 47... It says that the church enjoyed the favour of all the people. I take that to mean that even people who weren't Christians were attracted to the church. There was something utterly compelling and interesting about this group of people who were talking about Jesus and who exhibited such love between each other. So then, how should we respond to the church? I was at a wedding yesterday, and um, as is normal at weddings, the best man gave a speech and if, if you've been to many weddings, you know that the uh, best man's speech for many folks, the kind of thing they're, they're, they're looking forward to, is meant to be filled with uh, jokes and kind of uh, funny stories about the groom from uh, you know, his student days and uh, that kind of thing. But you see, there's one thing that a best man is never, ever allowed to do. And anyone here who's uh, got this privilege and responsibility coming up in the uh, next few weeks should listen out. There's one thing that a best man is not allowed to do and that you'll never hear a best man do. And that is to insult the bride. What is totally unacceptable is for the best man to say anything rude about the groom's choice of bride. I've been to lots of weddings and I've never ever heard that once. That would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? It should just never ever be done. You see, I think the lesson from that is clear. You never say anything to insult the bride, especially if you respect the groom. You never say anything to insult the bride, especially if you respect the groom. So if we claim to respect and honour and love Jesus, then we will respect and honour and love his bride, the church. Then the other thing about this groom is that he's no ordinary groom. He loved his bride with his life. He gave himself to her, to cleanse her and wash her and make her new, give her a fresh start in life. He loved her so much that he laid down his life for her. You see, you never insult the bride, and especially not if the groom loves her with his life. And furthermore, we need to recognise who the groom is. He's not just a friend of ours who happens to have invited us to his wedding. He is God and the supreme sovereign of the universe. You might vaguely think about insulting some brides, but you would never ever dream of disparaging a king's fiancée, would you? 
Let's pray together.